0: Hi friends, you're tuned in to Legal Means Business, a podcast by Leeway. We're joined by some amazing guests who help us identify how to take your legal function and career to the next level. I'm your host, Steph Smith, and we're talking all things legal ops and legal tech, as well as other critical skills needed to help you thrive in the evolving in-house arena. Don't forget, you can watch us on YouTube, or listen on the go through Spotify or Apple podcasts. If you enjoy the conversation, please do hit subscribe and let us know what you think on social.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's probably one of the hardest jobs in the world to be sole legal counsel for a growing team. So uh, it's, it's more important than ever to make sure that you're spending your time creating processes that are user centric so that you can alleviate the workload that you can alleviate and focus on the stuff that really matters.
0: For many, today's guest needs no introduction. Electra Toponis is a former in house lawyer, founder of TLB, previously the Law Boutique, and now co founder of One NDA. Electra works at the cutting edge of legal innovation and having worked with legal contracts for well over a decade, Electra knows that they're broken. Obviously, contracts are close to our hearts here at Leeway, so it was a real pleasure speaking to Electra, who is spearheading the shift to better, more efficient and more user-centric contract management. Today, Electra explores all things legal design and how we can apply design thinking to truly make legal processes and contracts fit for purpose. Electra shares some super valuable tips to implement design thinking in your legal team. So without further ado, let's dive in. Well, Electra, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining for us. Having,
1: thank you. Thanks <laughs> for having me.
0: Oh, no, not at all. Um, and first things first, huge congratulations on making the, um, the lawyers top 100 list.
1: Thank you very much. I wasn't expecting that. So it was a, a, a proud moment.
0: Yeah, and to right, I feel like it's well deserved after, <laughs> it, well, the, all the initiatives you've been working on and, and everything in your career, so very well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I suppose I'd be surprised if many people hadn't heard of you and, and the initiatives that you're working on and things like that. Um, but just in case, would you mind giving us a bit of background um, to yourself um, and your career, please?
1: Sure, so I, I'm a lawyer, my background, so I qualified in 2009, which is an age ago, it's about 14 years ago now, and uh, I, I started off my career in Cyprus where I'm from, so I did my bar exam there and I did my, um, it's a training contract. And then I went on to do a master's in international business law. And whilst I was there, I applied to the European Space Agency, which um, was my first job, which was in Holland. And during my time there, I think that's when I started thinking about law in a slightly less traditional way. So I worked with lots of people that didn't really care about contracts because they were doing much more interesting things. And I had to find ways to get them to engage with the process, I suppose, from a very early stage of my career. Um, I moved from Holland to Germany for a bit and I worked in a a space company there. Then I came back to England. I worked at Airbus. And then I went to BAT for a while, Disney. So I've changed lots of jobs, which is why I now own a business, because... I couldn't stay anywhere for more than about two years (laughs) um but um yeah so I was just in lots of large organizations and I was always frustrated with the way that the legal team and the business interacted and I was always very involved with contracts so in 2017 I decided to set up my own company so I set up TLB then And, uh, yeah, here we are today. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Oh, wow. What a story. I didn't quite appreciate how many different places you've lived and (laughs) like space companies. Oh, that's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to travel a bit when I was younger and live in different places and do just get a a broader experience, which I did. And yeah, Mm. in 2017, I thought I need to channel this, this, uh, the energy, I suppose, into, into a thing that I can grow at my own pace
0: yeah yeah totally yeah well I, I appreciate that because I'm obviously from Scotland originally but Leeway is based in Paris Um so I'm living out there at the moment which
1: is an exciting experience wow <laughs> that must be exciting
0: yep um, learning the language slowly but surely
1: good luck <laughs>
0: <Thanks>. <laughs> Um, and obviously over the last year or so it's been everywhere one NDA how did that come about and what is it?
1: So TLB is a we're a, we're a legal optimization company so we work with in-house counsel to help them really streamline the way that they operate through legal design and good process and we also offer them a service whereby we take away their contracts when they have too many of them. In 2020 uh, was a we had to see a, a terrible year but it was a huge growth year for us because lots of companies weren't hiring and they were sending more and more contracts over our way and um, at the end of the year, Roisin, who is a, uh, the, our COO and also the One NDA co-founder, and I did a review of all the contracts we'd looked at over the course of the year. And we found out that 63% of those were NDAs, but that only accounted to 7% of our revenue. And we said, this is ridiculous, because our mission as a business is to streamline and, streamline and optimize the way that in-house legal works. But as much as we work with individual teams that are interested in doing that for their own sake, this is an industry problem and we need to tackle it as such. So we, well, I just went on LinkedIn and I said, isn't it ridiculous that we spend so much time and energy doing this thing that doesn't really add much value and we just spend so much time and money on it and time, time that's really precious in, a, in an in-house team that's usually under-resourced. And, and that kind of went a bit viral. That post got 35,000 views and lots of people were commenting and messaging me saying, if you start an initiative to standardize the NDA, because that was my proposed solution to the problem, I'm there, I'll back it. So a couple of weeks later, we thought, let's just do it. Let's just set up a website and see whether we can get people to engage. And if we can get 100 people to sign up and show their interest over the course of two weeks, then we'll spearhead the initiative to standardize the NDA. And we hit that number 12 hours from launch. Two weeks in, we had 335 organizations that signed up, including in-house counsel from some of the most prominent companies in the world, including Coca-Cola, Adidas, UBS, Barclays Bank. Everyone, everyone who was kind of in this space of doing loads of NDAs saw this as a really mm. good solution. And we also got lots of the law firms involved. They wanted to be involved from the beginning. So we had all the big law firms, Linklaters, Gilbert and Tobin in Australia. We had uh, Norton Rose and uh, Slaughter and May and Ashurst and Freshfield. So everyone was in it. So it was amazing to see all these lawyers come together to solve a common problem without any real agenda, because we, you know, this was a non-profit. It was an open source. It's an open source document that everyone can use for free. So it was just it was really fantastic. And then we went through a process where we standardised the agreement, released it in August, and we now have had around 7000 downloads of the document and over 500 companies that have publicly adopted it. Although we know that there are about 1,200 that are already using it.
0: That's incredible. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. It does give you an oddly like warm, fuzzy feeling inside that everyone's (laughs) banded together to to get this done and and make an impact like that. So it's pretty cool and exciting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it was the most exciting thing I've ever done in my whole career. So it was amazing.
0: Yeah, and all from a LinkedIn post.
1: Yeah, LinkedIn's amazing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well you obviously identified a big pain point <laughs> for everyone so that everyone yeah banded together like that so that's
1: pretty I cool. mean NDAs everyone hates them let's be honest they add no value and well they do add a value I suppose they do add a value which is that they act as a bit of a ritual between parties it's like when you go out on a date with someone and you invest your time in taking them to a nice place it's it's better than just saying I don't know Let's just go for a walk in the park as a date. There's an investment there. So the NDA process is an investment in the relationship. We all know we're not going to litigate, but it just shows that we mean business. So from that perspective, mm-hmm. we should maybe we should continue to do them because they create that behavior but ultimately we need to be we need to be careful about where we spend our time because we just don't have much of it.
0: Yeah, totally. And when you did that piece of research, excuse me, when you realized how much time you were spending on NDAs, I bet that was a draw-dropping moment.
1: It was disgusting, actually. It's like, why are we doing this? What a waste of life. And also, when we started the initiative, one of the law firms did this research piece, and we found that they they showed that less than one percent of NDAs ever get litigated. So, I mean, it's it's, uh, a... you need to balance out the effort that you're spending versus the value that you're getting and it just doesn't balance out
0: yeah totally that makes sense Mm -hmm. and i guess the whole one nda initiative falls a little bit into legal design um which is obviously a hot topic but often a little bit misunderstood maybe um yeah. so what is legal design to you
1: yeah so 1nda is one big legal design project so there's no two ways about it um legal design is effectively a term that people use that i find can be quite confusing because what on earth does it mean and it just reminds people of pretty contracts I think that's not what it is. So design thinking is a very old methodology that has been used across the board in various industries. And it's effectively a method by which you create solutions to problems by really focusing in on the user's needs. So instead of going, so in the legal world, as a lawyer, you might say, I need to cover myself when I write this contract. So if anything happens, it's waterproof and no one can say that my drafting was terrible. Or they might say, I need to create this contract so that if the judge sees it, um, they'll be able to interpret it in this way. But but in but by doing that, we're ignoring the main user of that, of that uh, product because your contract is a product. And just to be really clear, design thinking in law doesn't only apply to contracts, it applies to everything that we do in, in, in not just the in-house space, but generally. And so it's important to focus on the predominant user so that you can create something that's fit for purpose. So in the use case of a contract, the end user is usually the business person. It's not even the lawyer in-house or externally that's drafting or reviewing or negotiating that contract, it's the business user. Because that business user will need to interpret it, operationalize it potentially, and then work on a project or receive a service on the basis of that contract. What good is it? If the business person can't understand it or sort of understands it but needs support from a lawyer to interpret how it's going to work on the ground you're not really creating something that's fit for purpose fit for purpose in law doesn't necessarily mean it's waterproof in case this goes to court you know that's a so in the case of ndas less than one percent of them get litigated in, in, in the in, um, in the world of law, less than 2 per, 2% of disputes get litigated because most of them get settled outside of the courts. So the persona of the judge is a very rare one that will ever see that thing that you've created. So you should be focusing on the needs of the user. And by focusing on the needs of the user, you need to get to know who the user is. So business person, doesn't really want to read legalese doesn't understand it how does that person feel when you put a contract filled with legalese in front of them or if you ask them to follow a process that's fit for purpose for the legal team but is really confusing for the business person it's just not going to work they're not going to engage or they will engage but begrudgingly
0: so there's
1: (laughs) a there's a a huge there's a huge knock-on effect when it comes to that so taking a step back applying design thinking is become is just taking a very empathetic approach towards the user and using um using processes whereby you you don't just jump to the solution but you empathize with the user you understand what they they need you do a discovery piece there and then you put together some things that you think might be viable you test them you iterate and then you create your solution In law that's not something that we're ever taught to do. We're taught perfection from the outset and if you screw it up, you're screwed because you're gonna get sued and your, your reputation will be damaged. So taking that fail fast, fail quick, get it right through iteration approach is design thinking in law and the output is an artifact that is fit for purpose for the end user and not for a scenario whereby it will go back into the legal system.
0: In essence, legal design is all about applying design thinking. And design thinking is all about creating things that are fit for purpose. The only way to achieve this is by designing your legal processes, contracts, etc. with a user-centric approach. To help you really understand legal design, you can view your legal matters such as contracts like a product. When designing a product, you have to think about how the main user will think and feel and act when interacting with it keep this front of mind at all times to create a product that's fit for purpose for your main user, not a hypothetical unlikely user such as a judge. And what are the the benefits um, that, that you'll find if you do implement legal design throughout out your work?
1: Yeah, so particularly in house? Yeah, so if we take the in house example, so less than um, I think it's less than 0.37% of businesses money is spent on the legal department. So the budgets are not there for legal. So they're always understaffed. And in our experience, we have found that there's about one lawyer to 100 employees within a business. So that means that as a legal department, you're super stretched all the time. Plus, a in a fast growth organization particularly you'll find that you're always having to do really complex stuff because there's changing regulation you know even the pandemic has caused a lot of work for lawyers who are trying to see you know how does it work with our staff and stuff like that so you want to be really strategic about the things that you do and strategy doesn't mean i have a plan it means i'm really smart about the things that i do but also the things that i don't do so you have to be a little bit cutthroat when it comes to say it comes to choosing the things that you don't do now the things that you don't do should be things that aren't really adding any strategic value to the business your best place as an in-house lawyer to do the work that's going to add the most value and do the work that requires someone in-house to 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 do it as effectively as possible so that so that's the premise that's why you need design thinking right you need to do as much as you can add as much value as you can with as little resource with the little resource that you will have so how do you do that the way to do that is to make sure that the things that you're not able to do are still being done well and you can do two things you can either outsource them to a legal company and they'll do a good job but there are other things that you want to insource that means giving them to other people within the organization that are well placed to to do the job so that's one thing so you're insourcing so you're giving for example dsars you're giving those to your data subject access requests. you're giving those to your customer services team because they're really well placed to do it and if you give them a really good playbook they can do it with little risk and the other thing is you want to make sure that you're not wasting your time doing repetitive things So first, insourcing, how do you get people within your business who aren't lawyers to do the things that you need them to be doing with with minimal risk? And the other thing is, when you do do certain things, how do you make sure that you're, um, you're following a process that will enable you to do the best job possible without a lot of repetitive work? So that's where the design thinking approach applies really well. So if we take the example of insourcing, say you decide that data subject access requests are quite repetitive, and actually you don't need to be doing them, your customer services team can do them really well, if you give them the guidance that they need. So the way to approach that is first of all, to get to know the customer services team. Who are these guys? What are they doing in their day-to-day? Are they actually best placed, you know? what what backgrounds have they got is there anyone within that team that's really interested in developing a skill set that they don't already have maybe in the legal Mm -hmm. team and so you don't just start off by going we're giving this to the customer services team you start off by going i've made the assumption that that's the right team now let me go and get to know them and figure out whether they are in fact the right team if they are who within that team do i need to influence the most Mm -hmm. right And then what do they need from me? What do they need? And how best do they follow instruction so that I can provide them with a guidance note, a playbook, a canned responses spreadsheet, that they can follow as seamlessly as possible with minimal support from us, but in turn, making sure that they're not increasing the company's risk profile, because ultimately that's the lawyer's job, is to enable business, but also to minimise risk. So how do you do that? And by getting to know them, starting off small so you could put together an mvp a minimum viable product which can just be a very basic word document or spreadsheet give that over to them get them to respond to the uh, dsars and then see how it goes hold their hand for a bit learn from it iterate and then go back so and by the end of the process you have a a really fantastic self-running uh dsar function that you're you're not even running yourself and yet you've Mm -hmm. just saved yourself loads of time because you're no longer doing that work, and another team is. So that's the premise. So that's the insourcing bit. And then I suppose when it comes to you doing the work, you want to make sure that people are giving you all the information that you need from the outset. That's a really good example of where design thinking can apply. Because if you're a legal team, and say, for example, you're receiving uh, instructions from all over the business, you can really streamline that process by creating a legal front door or buying a piece of tech that does that for you. And in that process, you should really be thinking about the questions that you're asking because you don't want to be asking questions that are confusing because people just won't engage and you won't get the information that you need. It's about getting to know the people, testing out lots of different things, finding the best solution, iterating, making it great and deploying it. The workload of in-house legal teams has been on the rise for years now.
0: So you have to be really strategic about the things that you spend your time on and the things that you don't. To decide, you should split your tasks into three buckets. Firstly, keep it inside the legal department. As the legal team, your tasks should add strategic value to the business. Here, you need to do as much as you can that adds as much value as possible with the little resource that you have to hand. So you need to be strategically selective. Two, insourcing. How can you distribute ownership of tasks with minimal risk to other people and teams in your business who are well-placed to do the job? Three, outsourcing. Outsource overflow or specialist legal tasks that require a lawyer to a legal company to reduce the in-house burden while still ensuring a good outcome. Lastly, by applying design thinking to each of the processes above, these will have the right people working on the right things with both confidence and efficiency. And I feel like <clears throat> as well, if you're t- t- using this process and you're engaging with the teams that you might be working with, if they are the correct people to kind of support you on that matter, if you're doing that and you're iterating, I feel like it will foster a better sense of a legal culture within the business as well. Cause they'll feel part of it. They've been involved. It's not just been dumped on them, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you're working with them to create a process that works for everybody rather than imposing something on them.
0: Yeah, exactly. Makes total sense. And quite a lot of the people I speak to are sometimes in quite small legal teams or sometimes even solo in-house lawyers. It feels like this is almost even more critical for, for people like that to help distribute the workload. Cause as, as you say, yes, they're, they do tend to always be <laughs> under resourced.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's probably one of the hardest jobs in the world to be sole legal counsel for a growing team. So uh, it's, it's more important than ever to make sure that you're spending your time creating processes that are user centric so that you can alleviate the workload that you can alleviate and focus on the stuff that really matters. And I think I I, I put a post up on LinkedIn the other day about how to create a target operating model, which is effectively a plan that outlines how your legal team works. And a a really prominent GC commented on that, and he made a really good point. He said, I don't think it's clear to lawyers, to in-house lawyers, that their job is as much doing the legal bits as it is doing the process so you your job as an in-house lawyer isn't just to review contracts and advise the business it's also to create processes that are going to allow you to do your job effectively and if you underpin that uh, that process creation by design thinking then you're in a really good place because the processes you're creating are going to be fit for purpose and they're going to give you the outcomes that you need rather than just it's like building a product isn't it you can't just blindly go into it and say i think the world needs this product you have to test you have to iterate you have to ask people you have to do your research and so that's re- a really big part of the in-house function's remit and without that you just you just see lawyers that are always drowning and not able to do what they need to be doing and uh, and you're not effective
0: yeah totally and as you see like lawyers aren't generally taught this stuff you are taught perfection and, and to get it right first time so I guess it takes quite a bit of a mindset shift as well.
1: Massive mindset shift I think firstly it's that you know my job is not just to do the law my job is to set up a function that's scalable that's easily operationalized and that's gonna um, that, you know you're gonna be tested on your finances as well so that's within budget so that's your job your job isn't just the private practice job of a lawyer, it's a, different, it's a different role altogether. And there's not so much literature around what the in-house role entails, because it's mm-hmm. actually quite a new phenomenon. So 25% of lawyers now are in-house, which is huge. It's a huge growth. It's doubled over the last 15, 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: we're seeing this trend towards the in-house career path, which hasn't really been a thing over, it's quite a new phenomenon. So we need to be clear what the remit of that role is. And I think that's why legal ops is such a big deal now. And Mm -hmm. five years ago, people didn't even know what it meant. Mm -hmm. So legal ops is a fundamental part of the legal function. And without one, I don't think a legal function can perform very well because you're just spending your time doing repetitive tasks or administrative tasks or low level tasks, and you're not really able to, you have got the room, the headspace to add the value.
0: Yeah, totally. Legal Ops has kind of allowed that or brought to the forefront that it is a priority that the process part as well, because I think we've all been there when you've been just super busy and you're just trying to get through your to do list. So you're not giving enough time or focus to getting your ducks in a row essentially, yeah. which is hopefully what we've seen with the rise of legal ops is giving that focus and that attention um, and that priority to getting that right so that you can really function more seamlessly and much more efficiently.
1: And you're only human. If you're constantly getting thrown bombs, you're just, you're, you just you want to focus on that because you want to do the tactical stuff that's going to get the, you know, get rid of that fire off my desk now, please. Yeah. But it takes a different mindset and a, you, need, you need headspace to step back and go, okay, strategically now, what am I going to do? Because I'm sick of these bombs being dropped on me all the time. And that's mm-hmm. why legal ops is really good because they're not doing law. They're thinking about the way you operate and they can come in and create a structure and governance and process and iteration and constant optimization, and you need that. And if you can't if you can't do it because you're constantly firefighting, then you either get someone in to do it for you, or you force yourself to block yep. your day out to think about the way you operate rather than what you're doing. Totally,
0: yeah. And I think it's so important that people do that because yeah, it's it's difficult but worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like with legal design, it feels like it's, it's moving from, oh, yeah, it's a nice to have, like you say, p- pretty contracts to becoming a must have essentially, yeah. and, like we've seen that with the, the FCA and the things that are being implemented um,
1: almost to force it. Yeah, that's such a good point. So the FCA guidance is just a huge, you know, flag that this is going to become mainstream and it should be mainstream. I think it's unfathomable that you would put a set of T's and C's a hundred pages and expect someone to read it. No one's going to read that. Come on, let's be real. We're on our phones now. We just want to accept the T's and C's without even reading them. I'm a lawyer. i never read them ever. I just accept and crack on. So if you're you're in an in-house scenario and your job is to review contracts, then what does that mean in terms of how? Because your job, as I said before, isn't just to mitigate risk, it's to enable commercial transactions it's to to enable growth of the organization so a way to do that is to have really good contracts so that you can negotiate quickly and get your deals done and if you don't have your own template contracts you want to have a good playbook that sets out your preferred positions what you're going to push back on and what you're not going to push back on so that you can do that really quickly whilst minimizing risk creating a consistent landscape this is all design thinking principles applied mm-hmm. to the creation of artifacts that will support your function and um it's not a nice to have anymore it's a must and people will start to expect it and i think we'll get to a point in five years where you see a hideous contract and you go no i'm not even going to review that this is not a starting point another yeah. example is user journeys so when you go onto an app or a, or a web app and you try and sign up if the first bit is you signing up to the t's and c's and that's full of friction and you're a you're actually a b2b business and and the and the t's and c's are going to be seen by a lawyer you don't want a horrible user journey with a hideous set of t's and c's that's going to delay the process because you're going to just get drop-offs so design thinking in the application of law is is paramount in today's world where everything's fast and you want to grow quick and you want to sign up quick and you want to close out the deal quick, you've got to apply design thinking. Otherwise it just won't work.
0: Yeah, totally. It makes sense. And you've, you've touched a lot on contracts there, obviously. What, for someone who hasn't applied design thinking yet, or that they're aware of, they might have um, sub- subconsciously, Um, how, what would be the first steps that they could take in terms of contracts and to apply design thinking?
1: Try reading it yourself by putting yourself in the shoes of the person that's actually going to need to use this contract. Try reading it with a different mindset. Take your lawyer hat off for a minute and start looking at it with a different lens. And then give that contract to someone who's a business person and get them to give you feedback. Read this contract and tell me what you think it means. And just, you know, watch them watch them be really confused. And so so do a discovery piece if you like, do a discovery piece and figure out what your areas of friction are, which bits are super confusing, especially if you're a lawyer, you will be amazed sometimes to see that there are, there are words that you just take for granted that are clear that a person who's not a lawyer doesn't understand. I'm not saying all contracts need to be readable by anybody who's not a lawyer. There are transactions, you know, finance transactions and m and transactions. You're always going to have lawyers involved, but think about your end user. And then once you've asked them to review and give you feedback, start figuring out what the best way is to present this information to them. Because all a contract is, is information. And there is a thing called information design. So think about how you're gonna present this information to the other person for maximum effect. And there are things that you can do to make that, that user journey. If you think of your contract as a product, the user, the reader will go through a user journey. So they'll start off by reading it, the first thing you want to know is what, well, depending on the context, it might be the parties, it might be the background. How many times have you delved into a contract not even knowing what it's about? You Get to the fourth page, you're like, oh, okay, this is what it's about. Or I still don't know what this is about. I need to go and Google them. I need to go and speak to the person who sent me this contract. That's happened to me loads. So context, give it some context. So there are ways, there are methods that you can apply to an agreement to make it more readable. Um, so that's where I'd start. And then don't be afraid of a bit of color. It doesn't have to be just black and white. Add some, add some icons, add some color, make it a bit more pleasant because people will engage. And that's mm-hmm. what you want. You don't want people to look at it and go, oh God, I don't, really don't want to review this. If it's a nice oh, contract, sorry. I love it. It's like, oh, I like this company already. Great.
0: So you're ready to apply design thinking to your legal activity. Let's take contract management as an example. Here are five steps to get started. One, view it through the lens of your main user. How will they think, feel and act when interacting with this contract or contractual process? Two, do a discovery piece. Speak with the main users to define what's important to them when interacting with contracts and understand how they best digest information. Three, develop and ship an NVP. With this newfound information, draft and implement your contract or process. Don't be afraid to get creative to help your business users feel more engaged and confident when working with contracts. Four, gather feedback. After having experienced the new contract or process, speak to the business users and understand what's working well and what isn't. Five, iterate. Using this feedback, update and improve the contract or process until both you and the users are happy. Remember that legal design is all about committing to a user-centric approach. And in the long run, this approach will foster a legal culture across the business, result in more efficient, better outcomes, and importantly, save the legal department a significant amount of time. And so just for the sake of clarity, If they are, if someone or a team is implementing legal design and they're assessing how far they've come, what does good legal design look like? And, and what would the, the the team, how would it look in terms of the team operating, the relationships inside the business, um, et cetera?
1: I think um, good legal design equals, equals output that you can measure. So if you're applying that to your contract process keep going back to contracts, it's the simplest, but you can apply it to your organizational structure. You can apply it to the systems that you're using, to the products that you're creating for your legal team. But in the application of contracts, if for example, you are spending X amount of time negotiating an agreement and you've measured that it takes around, I don't know, eight days to close out your template agreement, if you were to apply design thinking can you measure that and can you see what the gains are? So, you know, we've done projects for clients who've reported an 80% reduction in their negotiation um, and uh, contract closeout times. That's huge, that's money on the table. So if you can show, if you can start small with one project that can actually demonstrate value to the business, that gives you the business case that you need to then invest more resources to apply that methodology to other areas within your legal function. So I think before you start off any project, start thinking about how you're going to measure its success.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great, a great point. And particularly for the first few things where, where you're, you're thinking about this to even almost prove to yourself as well, so that yeah. you can get behind the idea um, and really show your value. So Yeah. I think that makes sense. Pretty cool. Just to, to pop back quickly to your point on your, your Tom model, uh, just in case, could you give us a quick summary of what that is,
1: just in case people are wondering? Yeah, so a target operating model is effectively, a, it's a documented plan, an operational plan of how your legal team is going to function. So you, you need a plan. If you're going to set out to optimise your legal team, what does that mean? What does it look like? How will you measure success? So we're seeing a, a massive trend towards in-house lawyers looking to build out their TOMs. And um, the way we approach it is by starting off, of course, again, applying the design thinking methodology is starting off with a discovery piece. So the first thing is, what are people doing in my legal team? I'm not quite sure, I think I know, but let's ask them and let's find out what they do. And then let's ask the broader business what they need from us. So let's start talking to people is the first thing. And then once you've discovered what people are doing, write out a list of all the things that they're doing and then assess whether they should be doing them at all. We did a project with a a client last year and they found out that two of their lawyers were spending 25% of their time every day monitoring Slack channels for tags. It was ridiculous. And you don't need to do that. You need a legal intake form. You don't need to be monitoring Slack. And, uh, And so figure out what people are doing, write down everything, assess whether they should be doing it at all. And then from the things that still need to be done, who does it? So that's a really big piece of work here. Um, But it depends on the size of your team, of course, but it's a really important piece of work. Should this be done at all? If so, who should be doing it? Should it be us? Should it be another part of the business or should it be outsourced? So there's a methodology that we apply there as well. So anything that's high risk. Um, and high volume should be done by your legal team. Anything else can be given to other people. And then once you've done that, you need to start documenting your processes. So, okay, you're gonna be dealing with legal queries from the business. What's the process there? And you need to start documenting that because in an ideal world, you've documented your process and it's there so that you can continually optimize it. But it's also there because if you go or if you bring in someone new, it's there. The way that you operate is there. And of course, um, once you've done that, you need to start talking about how you're gonna measure your success. So what does good performance look like? Where are you now? Where do you wanna get to and by when? So start setting deadlines and goals that that are achievable and measurable that you are gonna look at every quarter or every six months to see how far along you're going. And, And of course you can't do any of this unless you have a really good understanding of the business strategy. And, and, I, and we've seen examples of legal teams that don't really know what the business strategy is for next year, what the plans are for the, for the business next year. And that's not because they don't care, it's because often the CEO is not very good at communicating it, or they don't really think it's their role to go and find that out, but it absolutely is because if your business is going to be raising money next year, or they're looking to downsize, or they're looking to exit, Whatever it is that you're doing in the legal team needs to be structured to support that objective. So find out what your business strategy is, set out your legal strategy and the things that you need to be able to do in the next year, figure out what everyone's doing, assess whether you should be doing it or not, and who should be doing it, write out your processes, write out your OKRs or your objectives and key results, and then put in your governance. Your, your checkpoints with your team and the broader team to see whether you're meeting the objectives that you've set out to achieve.
0: Your legal function should have its very own business plan in place. Electra calls this a target operating model. Here's what it may look like in practice. One, setting the scene. This is your legal functions mission, vision and values. Two, what you do. This is legal's core activities and the risks associated with each of these. Three, who does what? Who is responsible for the relevant tasks, including those outside of the legal team? Four, how are these tasks completed? What are the processes that underpin each activity? You can use swim lanes to explain who is responsible for each part of the process and indicate any tech used throughout. Five, how are you measured? What are your objectives and key results or OKRs? These need to be mapped against your business strategy and ultimately your legal strategy. All legal teams should have a target operating model in place. In fact, creating them in the first place is a hugely beneficial exercise. And having a documented version of how your legal team operates creates clarity and drives motivation for your legal team and others that are involved with legal work. (laughs) Um, And just to to tie it up, what do you think the future of legal design holds? And we've touched on it a little already, but what trends might we expect
1: to see? I think over the next five years, it won't even be a thing. It will just be the way things are. So Mm -hmm. um, the best kind of indicator of something going really mainstream is when we don't even talk about it anymore. So I'm hoping yep. that just like legal ops, still being talked about a bit, but totally expected that it's part of a function. Um, mm-hmm. I think legal design will just be the way we do things. It won't be a special thing, you know?
0: Totally, it's yeah. exciting. Yeah, I like that yeah. way of looking at it as well. Yeah. <laughs> if we're not talking about it, we've made it. <laughs> Good. Um, and just to finish up, what's next for, for yourself and One NDA, TLB, um, what have you got
1: coming up this year? Um, well, uh, lots of exciting things coming up. I'm going on maternity leave in June. Uh, oh, congratulations. June. Thank you. Thank oh, you. Oh, that's amazing. Thanks. Uh, a well-deserved,
0: um, well, a well-deserved break.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not, not a break. I'm not scared about that. <laughs> I'm not expecting any breaks. I think, <laughs> I think I'll be looking at work. Like running a business is so much easier than having a baby. I think that's going <laughs> to be the lesson learned there. But, um, yep. yeah, over the next over the next year we're looking to really double down on all the legal design services that we're offering we're seeing a massive trend towards that now much more than last year and the year before actually so I think the mm. pandemic has really brought into focus yeah what we're doing and how we can do it better because when you're just working from your kitchen all day long you lose the office the office banter. And so the focus Mm -hmm. is on what you're doing and how you're doing it. So I think from that perspective, it's been good. So we're really doubling down on that. We're doing lots of this more strategic consultancy work as well. We're doing lots of product design. So we're working with product teams to streamline their user journeys and their onboarding processes for their customers. So all that is really exciting work that, um, yeah, I'm just very really excited about 2022 and how that's going to look for us. And of course, One NDA will continue. Um, we don't know what's next yet because the community will have to drive that. But in February, we're releasing the second version of One NDA, which will, we, which will include the iterations that we've introduced after taking feedback from the community, plus an M module to make it fit for purpose for a finance transaction scenario. And, uh, yeah, after that, we'll see.
0: The world's a oyster yeah (laughs) that's amazing a bit busy year but fantastic and super exciting stuff going on in your personal life and uh, in your career and in the legal industry so indeed thank you so much for for taking the time out to speak with us about it it's a super exciting and super important topic as well so looking forward to sharing it with everyone and thank we'll be sure you. to to point to your linkedin because there's loads of great content on there and you. um, and your podcast of course the optimised lawyer uh, which is fantastic as well so we'll be sure to point there so thank you so much
1: thank you very much thank you so much for your time <laughs> i'll speak to you soon
0: speak to you soon